welcome back. <laughs> Happy New Year to you all. Uh, the last time we were together, we told you that when we started the new year, we would start a new uh, Bible study series. We decided to do was to uh, go back to a study that we had done uh, during the midday Bible study period, but we've never done it at night. <coughs> you basically have two separate uh, groups uh, when it comes to Bible study, with the exception of one or two people, uh, Brother Mike Harrison being one of them. Uh, uh, most people who come and the day don't come at night. Most people come at night, don't come during the day. So uh, back in 2016, we did a study on the book of Esther. Uh, and none of y'all know that because none of y'all were here. Amen. <laughs> uh, but, but we're going to revisit uh, that study uh, for the next several weeks in the evening Bible study. One of the things uh, that drew me to Esther at that time when, when we uh, initiated the study, and we said that to the group at that time, is that we had never done a study on Esther before. Um, uh, other than having read Esther uh, to pass tests in seminary uh, in Old Testament survey classes, we, we didn't have a whole lot to do with Esther. And there are reasons for that. I'm, I'm not just bringing that up to make conversation. I'm bringing it up because it's a point. Uh, what do you know about Esther? The, 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 and that's chapter one. Other than that, what do you know about Esther? You don't know much. And the reason why you don't know much because nobody ever bothered to teach you about Esther. And nobody, not too many folk, preach on Esther. The only time you hear Esther's name come up is on a women's day when somebody wants to talk about a woman and they, they grab hold to Esther. And, they, and the only line in Esther that you know is perhaps you were born for a time such as this. And you don't even know who said it and who they were talking to or what they were talking about. We don't know anything about Esther is my point. And there are reasons why we don't know much about Esther. How did Esther end up in the Hebrew canon? When you consider the fact that the name of God is not mentioned once in Esther, God is not spoken of in Esther at all. How did Esther end up in the Hebrew canon? There is no reference in it to worship. You, you won't find anything in Esther that talks about worship. You won't find anything in Esther that talks about faith. You won't find anything that, in Esther that talks about messianic prophecy. There is no mention of heaven. There is no mention of hell. So, how does Esther end up in the Hebrew canon? And 
ultimately in our canon, in, in our Bible, when there is no reference to God, to worship, to faith, to Messiah, to heaven, or to hell. The immediate purpose of the book is to record the institution of the annual festival of Purim. It is to keep alive the memory of the deliverance of the Jewish people during the reign of King Xerxes of Persia, who is also referred to in the scripture as Ahasuerus. At first glance, Esther is a biblical character that has three strikes against her. She's female, she's an orphan, and she's a Jew in the Persian Empire, which makes her a marginalized individual, a marginalized individual. And yet, despite all the odds against her, she marries a king, she becomes a queen, and she uses her influence with the king to save her people from certain destruction. How are we going to approach Esther? For us, we're going to approach Esther from the standpoint of what we can learn that can help us with regard to our own modern-day marginalized lives. Just like Esther was a part of, of, of groups that were overlooked and considered to be inferior, we are part of groups that are overlooked and are considered to be inferior. I know you don't think that way of yourself, nor should you, but some folk think black folk are less than other folk. Some folk think that we are a part of an inferior race. Now, certainly we are not inferior, despite what people think, but we are marginalized. And anybody who wants to argue with the fact that we are marginalized, you just ain't paying attention. We are marginalized in this society. It does not matter what you think. It does not matter what you say. It does not matter what you achieve. It does not matter what degrees you get. It does not matter how much money you have. It does not matter what you accomplish with regard to invention and with regard to economy. None of those things matter. In American society, you are marginalized. The other day, uh, uh, the New York football giants hired a football coach to be their head coach. They, they fired their, their previous head coach and they hired a new football coach. And traditionally, when you hire a new football coach, he's either someone who has had head coach experience or has served as an offensive or defensive coordinator. I'm not here to teach about football, but I'm trying to make a point. Uh, this person had no head coaching experience in, on the professional 
level. None. He has never served as an offensive coordinator or a defensive coordinator in the National Football League. He was hired because, well, I shouldn't say because, he was hired from his previous position where he was the wide receivers coach. Not an offensive coordinator, not a defensive coordinator, not a head coach. He was the wide receivers coach for the New England Patriots. And because he was the wide receivers coach for the New England Patriots, somebody decided that he was qualified to be the head coach for the New York Giants. Now, immediately when, when, when this came out, several black uh, former players and several black commentators said, they, they cried foul. They, they got angry. They got upset. They said, how is it that these white boys get opportunities to have these jobs? And they are qualified African-American former coaches, former coordinators who don't even get considered. You want to sit here and say that, that, that we are not marginalized in this society? I will certainly agree with you that, that there is nothing inferior about us, but certainly we are marginalized because this society chooses to marginalize us. So, and, and I could go on with that, but, but that'll take more time than I need to take. I've, I've, I've made my point. We are marginalized in this society, in every aspect of it. And so if nothing else, we can learn from Esther how to survive in a situation where you are marginalized, where you are thought to be less than, where, where you are considered uh, to be inferior to other people. So it is important for us to recognize as we delve into Esther what it means to survive under certain circumstances. Now, the very first chapter of Esther gives us a contrast between what happens in the rest of the book. Chapter one of Esther doesn't talk about Esther at all. Chapter one of Esther talks about a young woman named Vashti, okay? Y'all act like y'all interested. Y'all came out. Y'all act like you care about what it is that, 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 that we're talking about. We, I, I, I want you to, to, to see the contrast between Esther and Vashti. Because what you see in Vashti is the message of the alternative view to how Esther deals with her situation. Now, without telling the, the, the rest of the story of Esther, Esther saves her people by maneuvering into a position where she has a place of influence. And then she utilizes that influence in order to keep her people from being destroyed. So in effect, what Esther does is she goes along to get along. You ought to know something about that. Have you ever been in a situation where you have had to go along 
to get along. You, you don't like what's going on. You, 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 you disagree with what's going on. But you go along to get along. That, 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 that's what Esther does. But in chapter one, we see somebody who's very different from Esther. Vashti takes a different attitude. Vashti's attitude is, I've gone along long enough. And I've, I, I've tried to get along for as long as I can. I'm going to take a different approach. I'm going to act up. I'm going to act out. Now, I just asked you, do you know anybody who knows how to go along to get along? Do you know anybody who just acts up? I've had all I can stands. I can't stands no more. I ain't putting up with this foolishness no more. I'm going to do what I got to do and let the chips fall where they may. Y'all seem to know more about that than you knew about, about Esther. Well, in chapter one, we see Vashti and we see how she acts with regard to this situation. Are you ready? Yeah. Yeah. Esther, chapter one. Let's look at the first nine verses. This is the story of something that happened in the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all. King Xerxes ruled from his royal throne in the palace complex of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his officials and ministers. The military brass of Persia and Media were also there, along with the princes and governors of the provinces. For six months, he put on exhibit the huge wealth of his empire and its stunningly beautiful royal splendors. At the conclusion of the exhibit, the king threw a week-long party for everyone living in Susa, the capital, important and unimportant alike. The party was in the garden courtyard of the king's summer house. The courtyard was elaborately decorated with white and blue cotton curtains tied with linen and purple cords to silver rings on marble columns. Silver and gold couches were arranged on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and colored stones. Drinks were served in gold chalices, each chalice one of a kind. The royal wine flowed freely, a generous king. The guests could drink as much as they liked king's orders, with waiters at their elbows to refill the drinks. Meanwhile, Queen Vashti was throwing a separate party for women inside King Xerxes' royal palace. During this period of time, Persia was at the height of its strength, at the height of its power. And Xerxes was an arrogant fellow who wanted to show off just how much power he had. And so he had this lavish party where everybody could come. Didn't matter what your title was. Did, if you could get there, you could go 
to the party. Some of y'all know something about parties like that, right? And, 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 and the wine flowed freely and, 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 and the place was beautifully decorated. And the servants were told to make sure that every person had as much liquor as they wanted. Amen. As much as they wanted. The moment they, they, they finished this glass, another one was right there behind them. As you might imagine, with that much liquor flowing, the longer the party went, the more wild the party became. Remember, this is a week-long party. This ain't seven hours. This is seven days. Okay? Seven days of party. On the seventh day of the party, remember now, they're, they're, they're over here, and Vashti has the women over yonder. Now we, we, we don't have a description of Vashti's party. We only have a description of Xerxes' party, and, and, and we see all the crazy stuff that's going on in Xerxes' party. We don't know what Vashti was doing. It could have been the same thing, could have been something completely different, but something happens in verse 10. On the seventh day of the party, the king, high on wine, translation, drunk, <laughs> ordered the seven eunuchs who were his personal servants, and they have names there, I can't pronounce them, so I'm skipping over them, to bring him Queen Vashti resplendent in her royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the guests and officials. She was extremely good looking, but Queen Vashti refused to come. <laughs> refused the summons delivered by the eunuchs. Now, let, to, to make sure that everybody is on the same page, what is a eunuch? A eunuch is someone who has been, a male who has been castrated. Okay, whether, whether they were born under that condition of castration or whether they suffered castration in order to serve the king. Eunuchs were castrated and they were castrated for a particular reason. That, 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 was, that was the way that the king made sure that the eunuch never did anything with the women that the king wanted to keep to himself. Okay, so, so he sends seven eunuchs to bring one woman from her party over to his party. And, 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 and he wants to put her on display. That's what the text says. He wanted to show off her beauty. She was extremely Good looking. Now, some Jewish interpreters suggest that what Xerxes actually wanted, what, what the text is actually saying, it, because it says, come in her crown. Do you see that? Vashti resplendent in her royal crown. Some Jewish commentators say what he wanted her to do was walk in there with the crown on and nothing else. He, he, he wanted her to, to be completely naked with nothing on but 
the crown. Stay with me. I'm going somewhere. Vashti said no. Vashti said, I'm not coming. Vashti said that this is beneath my dignity. And I will not participate. Now remember, her husband is not just her husband. Her husband is the king over all of Persia. And when he says go, everybody else says, where you want me to go? What you want me to do? And they jump to it as quickly as they can. But Vashti says to her husband, actually she says to the eunuchs, tell him no, I ain't coming. I ain't going. I ain't going to be a part of this. Here's, Here's the first point. It is always dangerous to allow yourselves to be defined in ways that demean the full content of your character. You should never allow anyone to demean you in such a way that they can objectify you and not deal with your full personhood. And Vashti said, I will not participate. It is certainly okay for us to be noted for the various talents that we have, whether those talents be good looks or athleticism or artistic talent or what have you. It's one thing to note those things. It's one thing to recognize that those things you possess. It's something else altogether to say that that's all you are. You are more than what other people say you are. Because other people have have a tendency to want to reduce you to what they need you to be. Now, Vashti tells her husband, no, I'm I'm not coming because I'm not going to be objectified as a sex toy for you and your drunk friends. I'm not going to do that. But let's take the, the, the sex part out of it and ask yourselves this question. Who's objectifying you? And how is it that they objectify you? It starts early. Were you the smartest one in the room when, when, when you were in school? Were, were, were you one of the smarter ones in the room? I, I need somebody in here to acknowledge I was one of the smarter ones in, in the room. If you were one of the smarter ones in the room, at test time, people who would never even talk to you would want to talk to you. You're talking third and fourth grade. It starts early. Objectifying starts early. 
they recognize that you're smarter than they are. So they want a copy off your paper. Or they want to say, I answered B. Is B the right one? Come on, tell tell. Did you know that that's a form of objectifying? You ever have more money than anybody else? Any of your buddies? I, go ahead. I know, I know we all poor, but, 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 but sometimes you had two quarters and somebody else only had 10 cents. Y'all remember when cold drinks only cost a quarter? <clears throat> and they didn't have a quarter, but you did. And so they cozy up to you because you always got money. That's objectifying. It starts early, and it goes on throughout your life. There are people who want to get close to you, not because they care anything about you, but because they care about the people that you get close to. First little girlfriend I had told me she wasn't interested in me. She was, she was interested in my friend. And she didn't know my friend, but she knew me. So she used me to get to my friend. The friend didn't want to have nothing to do with her. Sent her back. But, but, but objectifying starts early. We should never allow ourselves to be defined by what others have to say about us. You ought to know who you are. There's a hymn that says, I'm an heir of salvation, purchased by God. I'm born of his spirit. I'm washed in his blood. You, you don't want me to go to a hymn? Okay, let, let me go to the gospel. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. So why would you let somebody else define who you are? And whenever they choose to do that, what they're doing is demeaning you in order to elevate themselves. Now, is that not the very definition of exploitation. I'm going to use you to get what I want so that I can achieve, so that I can be happy, so that I can overcome. America is built on exploitation. And, 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 and I have sense enough to know capitalism ain't going nowhere. It's here. It's going to be here, at least for the rest of my little life. There ain't no telling what the future holds. But, but, but capitalism is here. It's a reality. But never forget that when the church deals with capitalism, what you're trying to do is put a square peg into a round hole. Because the tenets of capitalism and the tenets of Christianity do not line up 
with each other. Because it is a capitalistic society, we have to learn how to work within the means of the capitalistic society, and we have to try to limit, to mitigate, to reduce the level of exploitation that we involve ourselves in. But let's be clear, if you're in capitalism, you're in some form of exploitation. You ever ask somebody for a hookup? The price is one thing, and you say, baby, I can't pay that. Can you get me a hookup? That's capitalism. That's exploitation. We're involved in it. We're, we're constantly dealing with issues of exploitation. Turn in your Bibles for just a second to Acts chapter 2. Because I said something and you looked at me as if to say, what, what you talking about? So I'm going to show you what I'm talking about. Look at chapter 2, starting with verse 43. Verse 43. This is after the Holy Spirit was given to all of the believers in the upper room and after Peter uh, made his uh, exhortation, what, what we call the first sermon uh, after Pentecost. Uh, and, and, and I want you to see the response of the believers. Verse 43, everyone around was in awe. All those wonders and signs done through the apostles. All the believers lived in a wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. Do you see that? They sold whatever they owned and pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. You see that? That's Jesus. And that has nothing to do with capitalism. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to everyone as they had need. So, as Christians, this is what we're supposed to be about. We're supposed to be about the common good. I don't have anything that's just mine. What I have, God has blessed me to have so that I can share it with you. That's even true about your spiritual gifts. You think that your gift is just yours. Paul teaches that the reason why we're to come together as the church is so that we can pool our spiritual gifts together. So that the body of Christ can make a better, stronger witness for God in the world. You ain't got all the spiritual gifts. I don't have all the spiritual gifts, but when you pull your gifts with my gifts, and we bring in somebody else who has other gifts, and we all pull those gifts together, the world changes. 
as a result. That's what God intended was for us to recognize that, that none of us has everything and what we have doesn't solely belong to us. And so every time we talk about me and mine, and I ain't going to give up nothing, and, I, and do you know how hard I had to work in order to get all this, and you start moving your head around and all that other. When, when, when you do all of that, you're actually spouting capitalist line and you are ignoring what Jesus said Jesus said of himself the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many Make you turn one other place. Turn to Hebrews. I'm sorry, not Hebrews, Philippians. Chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Paul is the one who's talking. And, and in point of fact, he's writing about a schism that had arisen within the church at Philippi. And he's urging the members of the church to not let the schism, not let the fracture grow any greater. And his solution is for everybody to humble themselves both to God and to one another. Now, in the process of doing that, he cites Jesus as an example. And he says in Philippians chapter 2, beginning with verse 5, think of yourselves the way Christ Jesus thought of himself. He had equal status with God, but didn't think so much of himself that he had to cling to the advantages of that status no matter what. Not at all. When the time came, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave, became human. Having become human, he stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and then died a selfless, obedient death. And the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. Because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far beyond anyone or anything ever so that all created beings in heaven and on earth, even those long ago dead and buried, will bow and worship before this Jesus Christ and call out in praise that he is the master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. That's our goal. That's, that's our goal. That's how we are 
to live. That shouldn't just be words that we say amen to. That should be a goal for us to live, to humble ourselves, to give ourselves, not thinking, are they worth it? Are they worthy? Do it because it is what Christ did for you. Because I can, I can guarantee you this. You weren't worth it. You weren't worthy. And yet he humbled himself for you. Xerxes says, you go get Vashti and tell her, come on in here. And show herself to all. Show, show the fellas what I got. And Vashti says, no. You go back and tell him I said, no, I ain't coming. So what happens? Go back to Esther chapter 1. Look at verse 13. The king lost his temper. Seething with anger over her insolence, the king called in his counselors, all experts in legal matters. It was the king's practice to consult his expert advisors. Those closest to him were, and they got a long list of names, I ain't gonna call them, the seven highest ranking princes of Persia and Media, the inner circle with access to the king's ear. He asked them what legal recourse they had against Queen Vashti for not obeying King Xerxes' summons delivered by the eunuchs. Now, I'm not crazy. This man is the king of Persia, and Persia is at this moment the most powerful nation in the world. You go back up a little bit earlier to what, what we read earlier, it says that there are 27 provinces of Persia that are all under the control and the authority of King Xerxes. Everybody in every one of those provinces has to do what King Xerxes says do. And Xerxes is used to being able to tell somebody to do something and they snap to it as quickly as they possibly can. But when Vashti says no, he has to call a meeting. He has to call the lawyers in. And they have to sit around a table and have a conference to decide how he's going to respond. Something's wrong with that picture. So, 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 something is very wrong with this picture. How is it that I can be so much in charge but when somebody says no, I don't know what to do. Here's the key. Maybe he's not really 
Oh, Lord, I just said something. Maybe he's not really in charge. Y'all think that the current occupant of the Oval Office is in charge. The current occupant of the Oval Office can't spell cat. If you spot him the C and the T, he's not in charge. He sits in the seat. But it's often the case that those who sit in the seat are not the ones who are really in charge. Okay, so, 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 so then you ought to be asking me the question. Then who's really in charge? Read the text. It says that he called in his expert advisors, the seven highest ranking council members in Persia and media. And they sat around a table to discuss how the king is going to respond to the fact that Vashti said no. Here's a practical lesson for you. Don't just pay attention to the one who talks. Pay attention to the ones who talk to the one who talks. More often than not, if somebody is a mouthpiece, that's really all they are, is a mouthpiece. They don't know what to say. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to act. They don't know how to respond. They don't know anything until somebody tells them what to say, what to do, how to act. Some of y'all are scared of the wrong folk. I know, I'm not scared of anybody. Okay, you, you, you live in that lie. All of us are worried, if scared is too big a word for you, all of us are worried about somebody. I want to suggest to you that if you're worried about the one who makes the most noise, you're worried about the wrong one. Because that's usually what they are, just noise makers. What you have to look at is the one who whispers in the ear of the one who makes all the noise. Xerxes is king. He sits in the seat. He occupies the office. But clearly, Xerxes is not in charge. And what is true for Xerxes is true often for us, as much as we see others exploited in this story, it seems that the first one who's exploited is Xerxes himself. Did you think about that? I'm gonna act like 
that girl on TV. Ooh, I just said something. <laughs> and I did. The first one who's exploited is the one who sits in the seat. That, 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 that man who's sitting in the White House is the first one being exploited. He talks a big game. He talks like he knows what he's doing. He don't know nothing. He don't know nothing. And the reason why they're hanging on to him is because he has an 80% approval rating among Republicans. The moment that approval rating drops, they're going to drop him like a hot rock. You, you have a local example of that, not, not, not so very long ago. Y'all remember Bobby Jindal? Folk loved Governor Jindal. Legislature loved Governor Jindal because they could tell Governor Jindal what to say and how to say it. He actually believed it so much that he actually put himself out there to run for president of the United. You want to talk about exploitation? And when he took a position against LSU, all them folk abandoned him. He left office with the highest disapproval rating in the history of this state. That's what folk will do with you. That's what folk will do to you. That's what folk will do for you. We talk about exploitation. We talk about him trying to exploit Vashti. The one who's really being exploited is Xerxes. I can imagine that Xerxes, and scripture doesn't say this, so this is Fred's interpretation. I can imagine that as they got drunk, they said to Xerxes, man, I sure would like to see that fine wife of yours. Zerk, you know, they didn't call him king. Zerk, why don't you have that girl come on over here? Show herself. And he is so dumb, he said, that's a good idea. That's what I'm going to do. And he didn't know what to do when Vashti said, no. Ain't got but 15 minutes left. I'm going to get through chapter one before I'm done. Memucan spoke up in the council of the king and princes. It's not only the queen, the king, Queen Vashti has insulted. It's all of us. See what I'm talking about? It's not just the king. It's all of us. Leaders and people alike in every last one of King Xerxes' provinces. The word's going to get out. Did you hear the latest about Queen Vashti? King Xerxes ordered her to be brought before him, and she wouldn't 
do it. When the women hear it, they'll start treating their husbands with contempt. The day the wives of the Persian and Mede officials get wind of the queen's insolence, they'll be out of control. Is that what we want? A country of angry women who don't know their place? Don't you throw no hymn books up here at me. <laughs> I didn't say it. I'm simply reading what the text says. I gotta hurry on, cause, cause I still got a couple more verses to get to. But, but, but let, let me say this. It is insecure men that obsess over female submission to their authority. It is insecure white folk who obsess over Negroes staying in their place. It is insecure rich folk who obsess over making sure that poor folk stay poor. The key to this whole thing is insecurity. You get this thing where you think you, you, you get to a place where you've had enough. Let me ask you a question. Do you remember when you ain't had nothing? And, 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 and when you had nothing, you thought, if I just get this little something, I'll be satisfied. I don't need nothing else. Just let me get this little something. And then God let you get that little something. And next thing you know, you want something else. When I was a boy, we started in October getting upset about what we were going to get for Christmas. Christmas couldn't come fast enough. The, the, the Sears catalog came in the mail and the, the Alden's catalog came in the mail and we would go and grab the catalog and we would flip to the page. We, we ain't want to see the clothes. We wanted to get to the toys. And when we got to the toys, we would pick out which toys we want it. Now, 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 my parents had a rule. You ain't get but three gifts for Christmas. Santa wasn't bringing but three gifts for each of us on Christmas. That's all Santa could put in his sleigh <laughs> was three gifts. So, so, so we had to narrow our gifts down to three so that Santa could make sure that we had what we wanted. Because, and we would tell our parents what we wanted for Christmas, and Christmas couldn't come fast enough. We would sit around and talk about what we were going to do when we got our gifts from Santa. And finally, 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 Christmas Day came. And my daddy had a rule, don't wake me up before six o'clock in the morning. 
we would start at 2.30, 3 o'clock. And he, he, he said, no, no, come back in here till it's 6 o'clock. And at 6 o'clock, we would all go into the living room. And he, he'd open the door, and we'd see the gifts that Santa had brought. And Santa got us just what we wanted. And we would jump on our gifts, and we would play with our toys. And that would last from 6 to 7 to 8. Around nine o'clock. We started thinking about next Christmas. I don't think I'm the only one who grew up like that. I think somebody else knows something about what I'm talking about. We're never satisfied now, what, what, what does that what does all that have to do with the text insecure people want to make sure that they have everything and that you have nothing and the only something that you have is what they want to give you never forget this this, this is a practical lesson for life power is a zero-sum game. Sum, S-U-M. It's a zero-sum game. Folk with power don't want you to have any of it. Y'all talk about shared power. And they don't believe in no shared power. They believe in them having all the power. And when it suits them to their advantage, to exploit you, they will give you what they want you to have. And that's all the power that, that, that you can expect. Let's go back to athletics. Y'all think that LeBron James is rich because he plays basketball. Let me tell you something. You know who's rich? the person who writes LeBron James's check. LeBron James got money, but the person who writes his check, they got wealth. Chris Rock used to tell a joke. He used to say, Oprah is rich, but Bill Gates has wealth. He said, if Bill Gates woke up with Oprah's money one morning, he'd jump out of a window. <laughs> There's a difference between rich and wealth. Folk with power don't want you to have none of it. And they are insecure about the power that they have. And they want to hold on to it. And the way that they hold on is by having everybody else submit to their authority. Vashti has not just insulted our great king. Vashti has insulted all of us. And she set a poor example for all the other women. Next thing you know, they all going to be saying no to us. We can't let that stand. We got to do something about that. We got we to gotta nip this thing in the bud. 
I got five minutes left. Verse 19. So if the king agrees, let him pronounce a royal ruling and have it recorded in the laws of the Persians and Medes so that it cannot be revoked that Vashti is permanently banned from King Xerxes' presence. And then let the king give her royal position to a woman who knows her place. When the king's ruling becomes public knowledge throughout the kingdom, extensive as it is, every woman, regardless of her social position, will show proper respect to her husband. The king and the princes liked this. The king did what Mimucan proposed. The king did what Mimucan proposed. The king did what Mimucan proposed. Trump did what Pence proposed. Trump did what Pompeo proposed. I'm trying to make you see something. They don't mention God. But there are practical lessons about life in this book. The king did what Mimucan proposed. He sent bulletins to every part of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, to each people in its own language. Every man is master of his own house. Whatever he says, go. I got four minutes. Stay with me for four minutes. Lawrence, you there? Four minutes. That's all I need. Every African American ought to cringe when they read the words that Mimucan uses. These are the words that slave masters used to keep you enslaved. These are the words that white supremacists use today to try to keep you down. And what it tells us is what Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. You think what you're going through, you the first person to ever go through it. Get in line. As Reverend Domain says, get in line, baby. <laughs> Got a whole lot of folk who have gone through what you're going through. It is the goal of those in charge to stay in charge. They'll do it benevolently if they can, but they'll do it any way they have to, if they can. You ever know folk who nice to you one minute and then they stop being nice? That's because you ain't giving them what they want. So if they can't get it through nice, they're going to go and try to get it some other kind of way. At the end of chapter one, you never hear anything more about Vashti. She, 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 she is not mentioned anywhere else 
in, in, in the scripture, except at, at the very start of chapter two. And yet what Vashti does here is extremely important. There's an extremely important lesson that she gives to us. And that is sometimes you have to pay a price in order to maintain your integrity. If your integrity means something to you, then you have to be willing to pay the price. This, this thing about having your cake and eating it too doesn't work in life. When, when, when Rosa Parks sat down on the bus and said that she wasn't going to get back up, she might not have had a full understanding of everything that she was doing, but she did understand that as far as the law of that time was concerned, she was breaking the law. And she knew that there was going to be a price to be paid. When, when, when our foreparents, our grandparents and great-grandparents went to jail and suffered beatings and suffered fire hoses simply for claiming the rights that everybody else had, they knew that they were paying a price. They knew that there was a sacrifice attached to what they were doing. And what they decided was the sacrifice was worth it because I've been disrespected long enough. And I ain't going to do that no more. When the church decides that you're going to stand up and stop allowing yourselves to be prostituted by every crazy person out there who says, send me 1995 as your seed. When the church decides that we're going to stand up for the gospel of Jesus Christ, when the church decides that we're going to stand up for agape, which is love without limit and without restriction to everyone, when the church decides that we've had enough, know this, a price is attached to that. Folk going to get mad with you. Folk going to want to drop you. Folk going to want to leave you on. Folk going to want to do things to you. But you have to make up your mind that Jesus is worth it. I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold. Now you can play, Lawrence, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. If there's one, we invite you to come and commit your life to Jesus Christ. Just as I am without one plea but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou biddest me come to thee O Lamb of God I come 
Repeat after me, please. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Y'all have a good evening.